Hey everybody, welcome to the latest episode of Unstoppable with your host, myself, Kerwin Ray. And on today's episode, oh my God, I get my ass handed to me in a really interesting way. I am sitting down with world-renowned science educator, Dr. David Suzuki, who has a PhD in zoology and is a professor of genetics and an environmental activist. And I am not kidding when I say activist. He's actually best known for his work on the CBC TV series, The Nature of Things, and the founder of the David Suzuki Foundation in 1990. We talk all things from population control to the importance of renewable energy, recycling, and discuss whether or not our species is actually heading towards and creating its own destruction. And this one, I get my ass handed to me. Stay tuned, listen up, and enjoy. Dr. David Suzuki, thank you for joining us. Today. Oh, thanks for coming. No, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. First of all, I love your city. Vancouver is, an inc- is a beautiful city. We, uh, that's why I've stayed in the same house for 45 years. Is that right? Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So for people who perhaps don't know about you, and there's probably not very many people that haven't either seen your face on TV or heard of the work that you've done, um, why don't you tell the listeners who are listening at home and watching these videos, uh, who is David, Dr. David Suzuki and what is your story? Well, I think uh, uh, if you want to look at a few key things, uh, I was born in Vancouver in 1936. My mother was born in Vancouver in 1911 and my dad here in 1909. So my grandparents arrived from Japan in ni- between 1902 and 1906. Despite being born and raised in Canada, my mother and dad couldn't vote until 1948 because they were considered Japanese Canadians. When the war broke out with Japan in 1941, the Canadian government applied what they call the War Measures Act, which suspends all rights of citizenship. And my family was shipped off to an abandoned uh, silver mine uh, camp in the Rocky Mountains for three and a half years. So we were way up in the mountains, uh, deprived of all rights of citizenship. And at the end of the war, uh, the BC government got, saw a chance to get rid of half of its yellow peril threat. They said, you've got two choi- uh, choice. You can either take a one-way ticket to Japan or get out of the province and go east. 95% of the Japanese in the camps, there were about 22,000 of them, 90, 95% of them said, this country has treated us like dirt. We're going to Japan. My mom and dad said, we've never been to Japan. <laughs> it's a foreign country. Yeah, uh, We're staying. And so we got kicked out right away. And uh, I ended up in central Ontario. What it did is it dispersed what was a Japanese ghetto here in Vancouver, in BC, okay. dispersed us. But of course, the ends never justify the means. Um, and we were destitute at that time. And my dad said, uh, in order to, to survive in this country, two things. You have to work 10 times harder than any white man. Not, fortunately, that wasn't hard. <laughs> and the second thing was education. So his biggest threat to me, if he was pissed off at me, was, I'm going to pull you out of school and put you to work. That was, that was terrifying to me. Ah. Uh, so school education was really important. And so you value that from a very young age. Yeah. That's in a lot of Asian traditions yeah. are, you know, value education. So off we went. We went to, uh, I ended up getting a big scholarship to go to a college in the United States. And I'm ever grateful to Americans for that. I uh, got my education and then uh, realized 
Now, this is an important lesson. This is a long intro, I'm sorry. No, this is fantastic. I was in my last year in college in 1957, a small liberal arts school in Massachusetts called Amherst College. And on October 4th, 1957, I'll bet you have no idea what happened then. No, it was two days after my birthday. <laughs> I wasn't born quite yet. <laughs> the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. Right. And that was, uh, it was shocking. Nobody knew there was a space program. And uh, every hour and a half, this damn satellite was going beep, 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 beep. And of course, we were all freaked out because at that time, the Soviet Union seemed invincible. They're rolling over South America, Africa, Asia. I mean, they were just this powerhouse. And the Americans then tried to launch an Army, Navy, and an Air Force satellite. And every one of them blew up on the launch pad. Meanwhile, the Russians launched the first animal, a dog, Laika, the first man, Yuri Gagarin, the first team of cosmonauts, the first spacewalk, the first woman, Valentina Tereshkova. The American response was really in interesting. Nobody said, holy cow, they're advanced. We can't afford to catch up. They just said, we got to catch up to these. And they began to pour money into science. Here I am, a Canadian down there. You just had to say, I like science. They threw money at you. Wow. And in 1961, Kennedy announced, we're going to send Americans to the moon and back within a decade. When he announced that, we didn't, they didn't have a clue how the hell they were going to do it. But they just said, we got to get to the moon before the Russians. And look what happened. Not only are they the only country to land people on the moon and get them back, and they did it in less than a decade. But all of the unexpected the results from that, every year NASA publishes a magazine called Spinoff. And it's loaded with dozens of innovations that have resulted just from the commitment to get to the moon. Mm. GPS, laptops, 24-hour uh, satellite, uh, radio, television, uh, um, ear thermometers, space blankets, dozens and dozens of products that have come out of it just because Americans said, we're going to get to the, the, the moon first. And even now, 50 years later, when Nobel Prizes in Science are announced, guess who gets more than half of them? There are scientists working in America. So this is what I tell, that was a very profound lesson to me. The important thing to try to achieve anything is Make the commitment that this is what we've got to do. This is what we're arguing in Canada now. Our government went to Paris two years ago, signed the Paris Agreement to keep temperature from rising above two degrees. That was a great thing. We made the commitment. But now you got to do the hard part. Live up to the commitment. No more explorations. we got to leave 85% of the known reserves in the ground. Stop all talk about pipelines or expanding coal terminals, all of that's got to be shut down and we've got to get on with renewable energy. But now we're kind of, oh, well, I don't know if we can do that. You know, it's going to cost money. And so we failed to gain the lesson that we learned when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. You make the commitment and things will happen that you can't predict. So you've always had a, an interest in nature, and I take it that was from your time in the Rocky Mountains. As, well, that's as the ironic thing, of yeah. course. The, the funny thing is, most of the kids my age, their parents had come from Japan, so they were fluently bilingual. My parents were born in Canada. They were bilingual. They spoke Japanese, but they always spoke English at home. 
Right. So I couldn't speak Japanese. So the Japanese kids in the camp beat me up. So I didn't want to play with them. And, and we were in a place way up in the Rocky Mountains that's now a park, Valhalla Provincial Park. Nice. So I spent all my time in the mountains. We had no school for 18 months. Wow. There were no teachers. How old were you at this point? I was six. Okay, wow. But I wandered, I would gather mushrooms, I'd get flowers for my mom, I'd go fishing for trout. And uh, I met bears and, and deer and wolves and never afraid. You know, I, it just, they were out there and yeah. they accepted me. And that was my, my great founding or grounding in nature was all of that time I spent in the woods myself. Yeah. And so at what point did your interest in nature turn into the crusade? Well, aha, good question. I, uh, like all kids back then, if you're smart and good in science, you went into medicine. So I was accepted to medical school in my hometown, London, Ontario. Uh, but in my last year in college, I had to take genetics. I was an honor student in biology. And I just fell madly in love with genetics. I told the medical school, I'm not coming. My mother cried for months. <laughs> my son turned down a chance to be a medical doctor so he can study fruit flies. Uh, and so I, I went into genetics. I came back to become a, a hotshot geneticist in 1962. And I came back despite jobs at that time were, they were just all over the, I never even looked for a job in the United States. Got a job offer at Stanford, job offer at the University of California. I mean, there were just jobs everywhere if you had a PhD. But I said, I want to go home. I want to go home, even though Canada had treated us very badly. Americans are obsessed with money. And I didn't like that. I, I, um, in Canada, we had Medicare. Mm. We had a socialist party that was a perfectly legitimate party. In the States, they would have been branded commies. We had the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. We had the National Film Board. We had Quebec. We, I valued Canada, and I came back. And I was set, I'm a hotshot. I got all my training in the States, and I was going to be a hotshot geneticist. And a woman came along, and uh, <laughs> story of my life. Yeah. Most cases, it was a disaster, but I never met her. But in 1962, a woman named Rachel Carson published a book called Silent Spring, and that just changed my life. You have to remember, after World War II, the world seemed wonderful. Scientists were there. The, you know, people were moving to the suburbs, the American way of life. Everybody had a house and a car, and, and we just thought science and technology were wonderful. DDT, the guy that found DDT kills insects, won a Nobel Prize. Rachel Carson's book said, wait a minute now, we're very clever, but you don't get anything for nothing. DDT is killing fish. It's killing birds. It's affecting people. You got to think, well, the scientific community attacked her like you wouldn't believe. Wow. And one of the companies that went after her, it's disgraceful, was Monsanto. Monsanto's scientists just this is a hysterical woman. She's an old maid, never been married. What does she know about, about biology and chemistry? But Rachel Carson was the major hero. What was that book again? Silent Spring. Silent Spring. All about the unexpected effect of pesticides. Right. And that was the start of the environmental movement. Wow. She died two years later of cancer that many people are convinced was caused by pesticides. Really? Yeah. 
So that kind of leads us to, the, to, to probably the most obvious question to ask you. What is the current state of global warming right now? Well, you know, I did my first program on climate change. We called it global warming back then yeah. in 1988. And I remember vividly writing the script and saying, this is a slow motion catastrophe. Mm. And I thought it would kick in maybe 60, 70 years. I was more focused on forestry issues, on ocean overfishing, on toxic pollution. And climate change, I really thought that's long distant. But in 1989, I went to Australia for the first time. And there was an organization there that had just been set up called the Commission for the Future. It was a, a, an, a body outside of government. And it was supposed to look at what are the long-term implications of the way science and technology. And it was a, a great group of people. And I went to Melbourne and they showed me the actual numbers and what was, and that's when I said, oh my God, we can't wait. This is something we got to work on. Yeah. And it was thanks to Australia wow. that really triggered that for me. And this is before the ozone had started to develop? Well, no, the, the ozone issue had gone on, right. but that was really seen as a separate issue. CFCs are potent greenhouse gases, but that wasn't linked up to, to climate change. And global warming seems something, you know, way right. in the future. Yeah. Uh, and I, of course, when I went to Australia, I dove on the reef and I fell madly in love mm. with the, the, the reef. And in January of this year, I was back in Australia and I dove. Uh, we have an apartment in Port Douglas. Oh, beautiful part of the world. And I went out and dove on the reef and I came out of the water weeping. I mean, it just, what? The reef is dead. And I just said to the people taking us, I'm never coming back again. I don't understand. I mean, for Australians, you've got something that is, you can't imagine how monumental that is. And to see it in that state and still see the country committed to coal, to see people like Rena Lein and Gina Reinhardt, you know, being big people determining the policy of your country, it just drives me mad. If you're not willing to fight for the Great Barrier Reef, what the hell are you going to fight for? Mm. And that's what I feel about Canada. What is it going to take for us, for Christ's sake? We've got the, the last greatest forest on the planet called the Boreal Forest. And that is a huge uh, reservoir of carbon that is now being released into the air because, because we're just not acting fast enough on climate change. So it just, you know, when I, Hurricane Katrina happened, I thought, Maybe this is yeah. going to do it, you know? Then it was Hurricane Sandy. Now it's Hurricane uh, Ivan or Ivor, uh, whatever Irma, that. Yeah. Irma, and, yeah, I mean, like, what the hell is it going to take? So, uh, you know, what's, what has really chilled me is a report that just came out last month that said the chance that we can keep climate temperature from rising above 2 degrees this century is 5%. Now, I was shocked that we even have 5%. I don't believe we have a chance in hell of keeping it below 2, uh, 2 degrees this century. But they say there's a 5% chance of keeping it there. But the chance that we will go above 6 degrees is 10%. Oh. So we've got twice as much probability we're going to go above 6 degrees. We're currently on a, project, uh, a trajectory to hit over 4 degrees. This is... To me, two degrees is catastrophic. I can't imagine the world 
with a four degree rise, let alone a six degree rise. So this is so urgent. And it's leading climatologists, scientists that are telling us it's very late. I mean, I saw uh, Sir Martin Rees, the royal astronomer in Britain, was asked on BBC a few years ago, what are the chances there'll be any humans left by the end of this century, 21st century, 20 21st century? And his answer was 50-50. 50-50 we will still be here? Uh, that shocked me. Mm. James Lovelock, the man who coined this idea of Gaia, the collective of all life on Earth, wrote a book saying over 90% of all humanity will be gone by the end of the century. And your man, Clive Hamilton, one of the eminent eco-philosophers in, in the world, wrote a book, Requiem for a Species. And we're the species it's a requiem for. So, you know, we've got a number of people who are saying it's too late. These are scientists. And to them, I say, shut the hell up. If you're going to say it's too late, go away. There's no point. It's very, very late and urgent. That's the message. If we've got a 5% chance of keeping temperature below five, uh, 2 degrees this century, we got to go all out the way the Americans did to beat, beat the Russians in space. This is the challenge of our time and will define us as a species. And when I was asked to, to appear with you, I... I jumped at the chance because I think that what we have to understand um, is that what is driving us on this very, very, very dangerous path is the economy, mm. is economics. And I see the, the material that I received from your office. It's all about growth. You know, these young entrepreneurs, let's find a But it's all about growth. We can't have growth forever mm. in a finite world just can't do that. So if you're going to encourage entrepreneurs to grow, then they better well knock out another area because our economy's got to shrink. Mm. It's way too big. And I want to tell you, and this is, a, I'm taking advantage of you now, going to tell you two stories that show you what the dilemma is. In the 1980s, the British Columbia government gave a New Zealand forest company Fletcher Challenge, a permit to log a valley called the Stein Valley in British Columbia. The Stein Valley is regarded by the Nlaka Pomox people as their valley and it's sacred. And they came to me and asked if I would help them fight for the forest. So they didn't want any logging. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll help you. We'll see what we can do. And during the course of that battle, I met the CEO of Fletcher Challenge. And needless to say, what began as, oh, how do you do, escalated into a screaming match until he finally said, listen, Suzuki, are tree huggers like you willing to pay money to protect those trees? Because if you're not willing to pay money, they don't have any value until someone cuts them down. And that was an epiphany for me, because I realized he's abs in our economic system, he's absolutely right. Unless money is involved in some way, that forest has no value. And I said to him, but to the, to the Nlaka Palmuk's people, that valley is sacred. In all of your economic discussions, where do you put what is sacred? You have no value. So that means in the economic system, that which is sacred is worthless because there's no money involved in something sacred. And then I said, you know, the problem is that that forest, as long as it's intact, 
is taking carbon out of the air and putting oxygen back in. Not a bad service for an animal like us. Mm -hmm. You know what economists say when you cut the trees down and you lose that? Oh, that's an externality. It's not relevant to the economy. The trees are pumping water out of the ground, modulating weather and climate. It's irrelevant. The trees hold the soil so when it rains, the soil doesn't run and spoil the salmon spawning grounds. Irrelevant. Mm. So the things that forest is doing to keep the planet healthy for us and all other life is dismissed by economists as irrelevant. So number one problem with this system, why is it when we talk about pipelines or, or, or uh, super tankers of oil going around, why is it we got to always hear about the econo- economic advantage of it? They shouldn't even be in the discussion because we're, we're talking about the future of the planet. So is, this, is the climate situation we're in right now, do you think it's we're beyond ignorance? This is pure economics now. This, the economy and the corporate agenda is driving us in the direction we're on. And so what do you think is the number one industry right now that has to embark on immediate and radical change if we... They're all, but obviously the fossil fuel industry, which I keep saying to CEOs is, you're an energy company. Don't call yourself an oil company. You're an energy company. Now, fossil fuels are a sunset industry. Why don't you show that you're you're looking ahead? Become the leader in in renewable energy. That's, That's where it's at. You know, when I go to Australia, I'm just shocked that Australia is still heavily invested in coal. When you've got something Canadians would kill for. Mm. It's called sunlight, for Christ's sake. Why isn't Australia the leading, why is China the leading exporter in solar technology? What the hell's wrong with, with Australians? And you say, oh, no, 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 well, I mean, the economics, we gotta, we gotta export coal. What the hell is this? It's, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So how do we build an economic argument around the opportunities and the benefits that exist from pursuing you know, climate reversal? Or is, is, it, is, that a, is that a mute point? It's, it's not, we can't do the argument on economic terms. It's, it's like the, the beating the Russians to the moon. Mm. You don't argue how much is it gonna cost. You just say, look, we gotta beat those guys to the moon, that's it. Look, we gotta get off fossil fuels and we've got to start removing carbon from the atmosphere, period. Now, how do we do that? I don't know, but we have to then get government to, to encourage it. Now, I'm going to show you why what you've just asked is really it's missing the point. Anything We live in a world that is defined as the biosphere. This is a very thin layer of air, water, and land. And Carl Sagan, the astronomer, used to tell us, if the Earth is reduced to the size of a basketball, the biosphere would be thinner than a layer of saran wrap. That's it. It can't grow, it's fixed. Now, anything growing steadily over time, whether it's the amount of land in your city, the amount of garbage you make, the amount of water you use, the amount of pollution you make, anything growing steadily is called exponential growth. And anything growing exponentially has a predictable doubling down, okay? So, If it's growing at 1% a year, it will double in 70 years, 2%, 35 years, 3%, 24 years. So that's exponential growth. Now I'm going to give you a system analogous to the planet. That's a test tube full of food for bacteria. That's the world. And I'm going to put one bacterium in it. That's us. And it's going to go into exponential growth. So when I introduce the bacterium, there's one bacterium. One minute later, there are two. Two minutes later, there are four. Three minutes, eight. That's exponential growth, okay? Doubling every minute. 60 minutes, the test tube's completely full. 
of bacteria and there's no food left. So we've got a 60-minute growth cycle. When is the test tube only half full? 59 minutes. All right. 59 minutes, it's half full. All right. 58 minutes, it's 25% full. At 55 minutes of a a 60-minute cycle, it's 3% full. So if one of the bacteria, guys like you, come along and say, hey, you know, uh, things look fine. The guy says, you know, I've been thinking, we got a population problem. You'd say, what the hell are you talking about? 97% of the test tube's empty. We've been around 55 minutes. So let's suppose at 59 minutes, they go, oh my God, he was right. We got one minute left. What are we going to do? Well, we need a mega project. Don't give it to those economists. Give, Give money to those scientists. And in less than a minute, they invent three test tubes full of food for bacteria. So that would be like finding three more planets that we could inhabit immediately. So they're saved, right? Quadruple the amount of food. So 60 minutes, the first test tube's full. 61 minutes, the second's full. 62 minutes, all four are full. By quadrupling the amount of food in space, you buy two extra minutes. Mm. So what is all this crap about we got to have growth? we got to have growth. Every scientist I've talked to says we're already past the 59th minute. Hmm. We're way beyond the capacity of this planet to sustain us. And people get mad at me. They say, you know, how dare you say that? Look at our stores filled with stuff. Look at our, our people are healthier. We're living longer. Yeah, we create the illusion that everything's fine. How? By using up what ch- our children and grandchildren and their children and grandchildren should be able to enjoy. We're using it all up now. You know, as, as, as a, an industrialist, you don't dig into your capital. You, your capital is what your future is based on. You live on the interest. We've been chewing into our biological capital like mad. This is simply not sustainable. And as I say, I think, and scientists agree with me, we're past the 59th minute. So don't talk about growth. Don't talk about growth. That's talking about a suicidal path. Unless you can grow and knock somebody else out of existence. So what do we need to be talking about then? We degrowth. Degrowth. It's so about, population control. And we've got to be asking, what what is an economy? Yeah. What is an economy for? Are are there no limits? How much is enough? Are we happier? See, my mom and dad got married in the depths of the Great Depression. And that was uh, the definitive event in their life, the Great Depression. And because of that, they banged home over and over with me and my sisters. Live within your means. Save some for tomorrow. Share. Don't be greedy. Uh, You have to work hard to buy the necessities in life. But you don't run after money as if having more money makes you a better, more important person. Those are lessons that were banged into our heads because of the Great Depression. Now, you try going into Walmart's hailed as this great success story and ask yourself, in all that stuff in Walmart's, how much of it is a necessity? How much do we really need to be happy and healthy? And I guarantee you, 95% of it you'd never consider a necessity. That's what our society is built on. And I'll tell you something that it's a bug up my nose. What really upsets me is people who pay hundreds of dollars to buy blue jeans that are already ripped. Mm. And I don't know what the hell this is a statement about, but to me, the statement of anybody wearing pre-ripped pants is saying, I don't give a shit about the planet. I was raised to believe that clothing is something to cover up the naughty bits and to keep you warm in the winter and cool in the summer. 
that clothing was something you bought because it was durable, mm. that you could pass it on from one child to the next, that you used as long as you could. But now we buy and flaunt our fashions that show we don't care about whether this is durable. It's destined for the garbage heap because nobody else is going to ever wear it. And it's just a fashion for the time. Indeed, I hear men now pay $400 or more for blue jeans that are not only ripped, they're pre-dirtied. You don't even have to work to make it seem like you're a hardworking guy. Like, what kind of a species are we? It doesn't make well, that's a good question. What kind of a species what? are we? We, we can't are. recognize our own destruction. We are a species that don't care about our own children. This is what I've been t telling the Prime Minister of Canada and the Minister of Environment. I say, look, why did you run for, po for politics in the first place? Wasn't it to be in a position to make decisions and act on things for the future of this country? I said, both of you have young children. What you do or do not do now is going to have enormous repercussions for your own children. There are scientists telling us now they might not even live to the end of this century. Why aren't you doing something? And they give me all, oh, we're doing the best we can, and, blah, 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 and we have to approve pipelines, and we have to develop the tar sands, we need the money. Like, we don't even love our own children enough to act in the best interests of our children. That's what astounds me. And what do we do? We look to, we look to corporations. We now know Exxon's own scientists told them for decades that burning fossil fuels was causing climate change. And for decades, Exxon lied to the public and said, no, this, uh, this, is, a, this is a natural process or uh, it's not proven, uh, this is junk science. You know, so who do we look to? Who do we look to if our own politicians we elect to high office don't even care about our children? What the hell? What kind of a species are we? Mm. So what can we do? Like, this does sound very doom and gloom. And I, I, you made You're that. damn right it's doom yeah. and gloom. Yeah, and for good reason. So what can we do as citizens that in many cases feel like it's beyond our control? You know, it's in the hands of the politicians. Every time. How do we do something? Well, you know, we're always told, look, it's up to you. Suzuki, you're a hypocrite. You get in planes and fly. You know, you're, you're doing this, you're doing... It's up to you as individuals. Well, it's true. We all have to change our lives. But there are big decisions that are beyond us. Big decisions that set society onto the right path. Decisions like whether or not to build pipelines, whether or not to shut down the Alberta tar sands. Those are big decisions. The problem is that our politicians now are so beholden to corporations, they think doing good for the corporations is doing well for the, for the country. And so I say, we live in what is purported to be a democracy then that means we damn well have to get out there and be a part of a civil society that is demanding that our politicians focus on why they were elected and who they're looking out for. So if 30% or 40% of Canadians aren't even bothering to vote, we're not really taking being very responsible citizens, it seems to me, and we get the government we deserve. Now, in Australia, of course, you have mandatory voting, which I sure as hell wish we had in Canada. But despite that, you're voting in people like John Howard and uh, who's the latest guy, uh, who was that jerk that, thank God, just got booted out. What was his name? He's still in there. He's... Not Turnbull, the one before No, Turnbull. the guy before him. Oh, God. I'm not what even... an asshole that was. Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott. He's still in there. 
you know, these climate deniers are in there. So the challenge there is to educate Australians. And, you know, you've got 100% voting because you make people vote. But now you damn well have to educate your people. I just spoke this morning to the World Environmental Educators uh, uh, Conference. And I said, folks, we've blown it. We're, you know, the result of all of our years of environmental education is that Donald Trump is, prime, is president of the United States. Is this a great achievement? We've got an ignorant an ignorant uh, voting public if they're going to elect someone like that. So you're suggesting there needs to be a revolution in the countries whereby we can make a difference? We have voice. to. We've got a 5% chance of keeping temperature below 2 degrees. That's got to be our focus, and we do that in every way we can. So how do we introduce that into the dialogue with the youth and with the people that can make a difference and can vote when they're, when they're interested in buying the latest ripped blue jeans that have already been pre-worn? I think the young people, certainly in Canada, and I suspect in Australia, they know this isn't working. Yeah. They know this isn't working. They need, they need leadership. And so what I'm, what I'm doing now is I'm saying I'm an elder. And as an elder, I'm in a very special place. I don't have to worry about kissing anybody's ass to get a job or a raise or a promotion. I'm not worried about power or money or fame or, or even sex. I'm way past that. So I'm free then to speak the truth. Mm. So what I'm asking for is, look, retired company presidents and CEOs, when you've retired, for Christ's sake, tell us the truth. You don't have any, any worry about your future. Tell us the truth. Get out there and tell us what it's like. One of the most powerful groups in the peace movement that I was involved in in the 60s was retired admirals and generals against nuclear war. These were guys that, while they were presidents or generals and admirals, had to say, we need nuclear deterrence and we have to build up our armada. Once they retired, they could tell you the truth. This is madness. And they had all that experience and credibility to tell us. And I'm waiting for Grays for Green or some kind of retired people to get up there who don't have anything to lose by telling the truth. And what do they say? What's life all about? What, what really, at the end of your life, Mr. CEO and Mr. Mr. President, what are you proudest of? Was it money? Is that all it is? Or are there other things that are more important than money? And I think that we need elders to get up and tell the youth, and the youth provide the muscle, and, and it's their future that is, that's at stake. So is it too late? You can't say it's too late. With 5% chance, like, as a, and again... I don't see myself as an industrialist, but I certainly see myself as an entrepreneur. But when I see, when I hear 5% chance, I hear hope. I hear that even if there's 1%, half percent chance, all, I hear hope. That's all we're left with is yeah. hope. So when I hear people that are saying it's too late, as Guy McPherson, this guy, people are saying we've passed too many critical tipping points to go back. I say, look, your message of urgency, that's the message to get out. Because even if it is too late, we're not going to stop. Hmm. Are you just going to say, oh, well, what the hell? That's a, the planet's going to hell. Let's, you know, of course not. You can't. So shut the hell up. Don't say it's too late. And I say, we don't know enough to say it's too late. Yeah. You've got to have hope. Now, the hope I cling to is not based on some Pollyanna-ish idea. Oh, well, don't worry. Things. No, it's based on reality. The, the most prized species of salmon in the world is called the sockeye salmon. And this is a species, the flesh is bright red and oily. It, it, it's a great fish, right? The biggest run of sockeye in the world is in the Fraser River here in British Columbia. 
And we like to get 20 to 30 million sockeye coming back in their run. In 2009, we got just over 1 million sockeye coming back. And I vividly remember turning to my wife and I said, that's it, they, they've had it. There isn't enough biomass to get them up to the spawning beds. To I said, the sockeye are gone. One year later, we got the biggest run of sockeye in a hundred years. So I say this not to show oh, how yeah. stupid I am. No. We've got a royal commission trying yeah. to find out what the hell's going on. But nature shocked us. And I believe that nature has many, many more surprises. Some of them not so great. Mm. But I think she will be far more generous than we deserve. We've got to pull back. We've got to protect every bit of nature we've got left and work like hell to cut our ecological footprint and try to restore nature. We've got to re-green the planet. There's, this is the opportunity we have, but it's a very narrow window. But you always have to have hope because we've got our children and grandchildren Absolutely. whose future is at stake. And this is impacting me quite significantly. I've got a three, three and a half year old. Well, there it is. You know, this is, this is certainly hitting home. I said to Tim Flannery, you yeah. know, Tim Flannery, I said, yeah. he just got remarried and had a kid. And I'm going, oh, my God, <laughs> you know what you, you know, yeah. you've got. Is there any room for technology? Yes, to of course. To be able to, you know, essentially help us combat some of these effects? There is enormous opportunity. There is enormous opportunity. We need things, not just alternatives to the current energy problem. We, we're going to need technology to begin to reduce the carbon yeah. and methane in the atmosphere. Is that a conversation that we should be pointing industrialists towards? Because if people are driven by economics and if we can't change that perspective, you know, radically and quickly, should we be looking for ways to be able to ignite the conversation around the economics of technology could perhaps The only back? problem is that we always have to be aware that we don't know enough to anticipate the negative consequences yeah. of technology. That's what Rachel Carson did with pesticides. When, how, how can we be careful if we didn't even know there was a thing called biomagnification up the food chain? We didn't know about that. When atomic bombs were do dropped on Japan, we didn't know there was radioactive fallout. That was discovered years later. When CFCs were first used in huge quantities, we didn't know in the upper atmosphere chlorine would be broken off and scavenge ozone. So over and over again, our knowledge is too limited to anticipate all of the consequences. And yet we're jumping into nanotechnology, into artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, and now people are saying, whoa, we've got climate is running away geoengineering. We've already screwed up the planet and we want to have more technology by taking over the whole atmosphere and engineering it to keep it from heating up too much. This is madness. This is absolute madness. I say that we need new technology, but it's got to be technology done with great humility and care. And I believe the guiding principle of technology has got to be what's called biomimicry. Rather than overwhelming nature with how smart we are, We've got to look to nature and say, gee, you know, nature, you've, you've dealt with many of the same problems we have. How do you find a mate? How do you reproduce? Where do you find food? What do you do when you get sick? What happens with parasites? These are every species has had the, even bacteria get viral infections. And we all develop solutions to that. Well, what, maybe we should follow how nature does things to avoid getting into these big difficulties. So, you know, I, I always well, say, is this the world's way of, you know, essentially getting rid of bacteria? Like if, 
you know, if we look at the world Gaia as an organism, as its own organism in itself, with you know numerous multiple inter interwoven complex parts, it's starting to heat up. It's as if you know the planet is having a it's got a fever. And when we have a temperature, you know, our body heats to a level that in many cases Kills will kill off the bacteria. That's right. So is this, is what we're experiencing perhaps not necessarily annihilation of the earth? Oh, I think that's what you actually said in the first part of our conversation. Is what we're experiencing not necessarily the annihilation of earth, but the potential annihilation of mankind yeah. so earth can re rehabilitate? Yes. I mean, I don't think that there's any conscious consequence of what's going on. It's just yeah. the way that, that Gaia works is all of these systems are operating mm. and when something changes, an ice age or whatever, there are compensatory mechanisms. Life carries on. Speci the extinction is natural. 99.9999% of all species that have ever existed are extinct. So the earth is not going to be annihilated. The earth is going to do fine. Yeah. Got along fine without us. Yeah. It'll. It's not the biosphere is kind of being disturbed by us, but uh, long after we're gone, the Earth will still be here, and whatever is here will be here. The, uh, Do you think maybe that's what's required, like a significant an event that wipes out a huge portion of populations in order for the Earth to rebuild and for us to do it again, but perhaps in a more intelligent Well, no, if the Earth, if there's that kind of catastrophic event, we're not going to be around. We're at the apex, we're right. at the top. When you have an extinction crisis, all the apex, the top species, they're the most vulnerable. We're gone. It'll be insects, fungi, bacteria. I mean, though, and, and I have no doubt that life will again flourish. But if we look at the past five episodes of major extinction, where, you know, 80, 90% of species disappear, it takes 10 to 20 million years before you build up again in terms of diversity and, right. and so on. So we've, we've changed, we are the major force changing the chemical, physical and biological properties of the planet. The plant, the biosphere is going to take many millions of years to recover in terms of the diversity and, yeah. and all that. But you know, I, I, I have grandchildren. So although I, I see that extinction is normal and we're driving towards our own extinction, pisses me off that we still have an opportunity to do something to, for our grandchildren. That's what, what drives me. And if scientists say we have a 5% chance, that's what I'm going for. And for me and, and, and the foundation, I'm saying Canada signed a treaty. I, Australia signed a treaty in Paris. Now damn well live up to it. That's my whole pressure. If you mean what you did, then goddamn well live up to it. That means leave the coal in the ground. That means harnessing the, the sun's energy and exploiting that. That means getting off in a, in a radically different way and regreening the planet. You know, if you look, whenever I fly over a forest, I'm just struck. You look down, everything is going like this. Give it to me, right? Now you fly over a city. All you see are the, the, the flat surfaces of huge buildings, concrete sidewalks, asphalt uh, roads. Those are all potential sunlight receivers. Now uh, France is building a thousand kilometer highway that's a complete solar panel. That solar panel will feed hundreds of thousands of homes with energy. In, in uh, um, Freiburg in Germany, they've got a whole subdivision where each house actually makes money by putting energy back onto the grid. They put more energy on than they receive. 
And so they actually make money by, by making green energy. This is a kind of thing that we've got to start doing. And there is entrepreneurial opportunity. But entrepreneurialism has got to be driven with the understanding that that must not come at the expense of the things that matter. Mm. So this is a very long interview. I know you no, just need to, but no, let, I want to tell you one more story because it's a very important one. We've been fighting the Alberta tar sands now for many years, and we believe it, it has to be stopped and shut down. So four years ago, I get a phone call, and it's the CEO of one of the largest oil companies in the tar sands. Can I come and talk to you? I said, of course. I said, I'm not into fighting. I stopped fighting a long time ago because in any fight, you have a winner and a loser. We can't afford losers. We've all got to be working together. So come on down. He came down the next morning, came to the door here, and I, you know, I thanked him and all that. And I said, I want you to do me one favor before you come into my office. I want you to leave your identity as a CEO outside the door. I want to meet you one human being to another. Because I said, the important thing I think is we both have to agree on what it is to be human and how we have have to provide the fundamental needs. Then we can talk about your company or whatever, but I, I want to find out where do we agree? Now, this blew him away because that's not why he came down. <laughs> but to his credit, I could yeah. tell from his body language, he did not want to do this, but he came in and sat down. I said, look, I'm sorry. I know this isn't why you came, but this is what I'm thinking. I said, you know, we live in a world that is shaped and constrained by laws of nature. And there's nothing you can do about it. You have to live within it. I said, physics tells you that you can't build a rocket that will travel faster than the speed of light. You know that. That the law of gravity says, if I trip on this rock, I'm gonna hit my head on the ground. That's gravity. And the first and second law of thermodynamics tells you you can't build a perpetual motion machine. But those are all laws of physics, and it's crazy to try to, to beat them. So chemistry, the atomic property of the elements determines the melting point, the freezing point, the, the reaction rates and diffusion constants. That's all determined by the properties of the atoms, of the elements. And chemists can tell you what we can or cannot make in a test tube. We live with that. And biology, it's the same. Every species has a maximum number that can be uh, achieved. And that's dictated by what's called the carrying capacity of an ecosystem or habitat exceed that number and your population will crash. Well, we, we're not confined to ecosystems because we're smart, we adapt, but we live within the biosphere and there is only a certain maximum number that can be sustained and we're long past that. The carrying capacity is determined by both the number of humans there are and the amount per, per person that we use. And we're way over the ability of the planet to sustain us and we do that by using up our, our children's legacy. So, uh, and biology dictates that we are animals. I never realized that how controversial that is. I gave a talk in Austin, Texas at the, in the 1990s to the first annual meeting of the Green Builders. And there were 3,000 people and a lot of kids. And I said, now kids, if you remember one thing from my speech, remember we are animals. My God, did the parents get pissed off at me? This woman came up, she was mad. Don't call my daughter an animal, we're human beings. And I said, Madam, I'm really sorry, but if your daughter isn't an animal, is she a plant? Because we're one or the other. And as an as a animal, 
I said, Mr. CEO, what is the most important thing that we need? And instead, any child would tell you, but he's going, well, uh, uh, and I knew right away he's thinking jobs, money. Mm. I said, look, if you don't have air for three minutes, you're dead. If you have to breathe polluted air, you're sick. So, Mr. CEO, would you agree with me? Clean air should be regarded as sacred. It's something that we all should have a responsibility to protect. And then I said, you and I, we're 60 to 70% water. We're just basically a blob of water with enough organic thickener added. We don't dribble away on the floor, you know, but our bodies leak water, right? Skin and our eyes and our crotch and we lose water. I said, Mr. CEO, if you don't have water for four to six days, you're dead. If you have to drink contaminated water, you're sick. So clean water should be sacred. And that's, we have a responsibility to protect that. And then with food, you know, we can last four to six weeks, but eventually we, we die. Every bit of the food we eat was once alive, plants and animals, and most of it grows in the soil. So would you agree that clean food and soil is up there with clean water and clean air? And then I said, all of the energy in our bodies that we need to grow and move and reproduce, all of the energy in wood and dung and peat, oil, coal and gas, all of that is sunlight. Sunlight captured by plants in photosynthesis, converted into chemical energy. We get it by eating plants or animals that eat the plants. We store it. When we need to move or work or reproduce or grow, we burn those molecules and liberate the energy of the sun back out in our bodies. So photosynthesis joins clean soil, clean air, and clean water. And then I said the miracle to me of life on earth is those four things that indigenous people call earth, air, fire, and water. Those four sacred elements are cleansed, replenished, created by life. It's all of the plants that are creating, capturing sunlight and, and, and letting us store it. It's all the plants taking carbon out of the air, putting oxygen back in it. Before there were plants, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. Plants create, create the oxygen. It's, it's soil, fungi, and bacteria that filter the water when it falls on land. In Vancouver, you're drinking water out of three watersheds surrounded by old-growth rainforest. And all the plant roots and the soil, fungi, and bacteria filter. We don't have to do anything. And I know people say, well, the fish shit in the water. Well, guess what? It's all clean by nature. You know, we drink that water. Nature creates soil. You know, the movie The Martian where Matt Damon is stranded. There's lots of sand and clay and gravel, and, but there's no soil because soil is created by life. So he has to put poop, poop in every hole to put the potatoes in to grow them. So life creates the very things that we need to survive. And our responsibility should be to protect those things because they're the foundation of the way we live. Other things... Borders, we draw around properties, cities, and, and they, they don't mean anything in the natural world, right? Nature couldn't care less. And then we have things we call capitalism, the economy, the market, corporations. We act like these are forces of nature, but we invented them, for Christ's sake. It's like believing in dragons or demons. Who believes in 300 years ago, people believed dragons were real. We don't anymore. Well, then why have we replaced them with the economy? Or the market, the market, free the market, let the market. This is a human-created thing. We can't change nature, but we can change the things that we create. That's the challenge for the entrepreneurs. How do we create an economy 
that nourishes the things that keep us healthy and alive, the air, the water, the soil. That's a challenge for your entrepreneurs. How can we make a living through the economy while performing a sacred obligation? And I said to this CEO, I said, Mr. CEO, I know this is difficult, but if you will shake hands with me and agree, that's the foundation of the way we live. I will do everything I can to help you and your company. What do you think he did? He couldn't shake hands. He was a good man. This is what I'm always told. You know, he's a good man. He goes to church every Sunday. He loves camping with his kids. But the game he's playing in, your game, it's rigged. It's rigged to ignore the most precious things that we have. If he were to go back to his shareholders and say, look, I had a discussion with Suzuki and I have to agree, whatever our company does, we can't mess with the air, the water, the soil, he'd get fired in a picosecond because that's not his job. His job is to make money. The more and the faster, the better. And to say we've got to protect the air, the water, the soil, that's, those are not in the game. So we can't, we've got to change the rules of the game if we want to keep playing. And that's a big challenge. Oh, I can see that. And if there was three, and again, I want to get back to some practicality of what we can do. You know, as entrepreneurs, you've made a really strong case, one that I'll be championing. But as, you know, not everyone listening to this is going to be necessarily an entrepreneur in business. But if there's three things at a practical level, at a household level that everyone could do immediately in order to affect some change. I, I know the first one you mentioned was, you know, use your voice, vote. Yes. You know, make that noise. is right now with a very short window of yeah. opportunity. We've got to be, everybody has got to be active yeah. in the political process at every level, municipal, provincial. You're basically calling for a revolution. We need a revolution. Well, no, I'm just saying let's have responsible democracy where everybody, like the Australians, yeah. where everybody votes. Is there such a thing as responsible democracy? Because well, democracy the, seems to be kind of, it's a bit laughable at the moment when you look at what's going on. Well, you know, we worked with the, with the Chinese government for three years. There is an area in Tibet a big area the size of Italy that is the source of four of the great rivers, the Selween, the Brahmaputra, the Yangtze. There are four great rivers coming out of this area, and they're logging the hell out of it. So we worked for, for three years going to meet with officials and drinking and negotiating, and, and, and then after they trusted us, we were saying there are alternatives to logging. They understood that logging in the upper waters caused floods and all kinds of shit down, downstream. So we, we convinced them that we had economic alternatives. They said, okay, we agree. Overnight, the logging stopped. Wow. That's what you can do when you don't have a democracy. Yeah, right. But wow. uh, I, prefer, I prefer a democracy. I'm sorry. No, and I, really, I, I really believe that. But it's, it, it's only as good as... How much people are going to be yeah. involved in it. And right now, we're not. So step one, we need step to use one, voice. Yeah. We need to vote. We need and to then, vote with... the with, with, And it's not necessarily... And again, this is, a, this is a huge mind shift. We're not voting necessarily with the planet in mind. We're voting with humanity. In Absolutely. Mind. What's the second thing we can do? Well, of course, we have to live in a very different way. Yeah. And that is, I think, that one of the major uh, issues we have to confront in the developed world, in the industrialized world, is we are the hyper-consumers on the planet. If every country in the world wanted to live the way we do in Canada and Australia, 
the 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 we're hooped yeah. many times over. We are the overpop. You know, I know population is a big issue in Australia. You're already way overpopulated. Why? Because of your hyperconsumption. Mm. There is no way that Australia can support. What do you have? 18 million? 23. 23 million. Yeah. There's no way that 23 million could live within the boundaries of Australia. You can't. You, you depend on the global economy. So the reach of Australia is you can live very high in your big cities because you're using the whole world to get your goods and sell your stuff and all that. We've got we've to be much more locally based. We've got to eat local. We preferably buy local. And, but the big challenge is, for Christ's sake, think hard about whenever you spend money. If you go out to buy a, a cotton shirt, very few people know that cotton is probably the most chemically intensive crop we grow. And if you look at areas like in Eurasia, where they've got the biggest cotton growing area, and look at the impact that that's had on the rivers and lakes, on the people, it's been absolutely catastrophic. We just think, I want a cotton shirt, you know, and I put my money down, I want a logo on it, and off we go. But just buying that cotton shirt has reverberations that ripple out. And uh, we've got to be much more thoughtful about the way that we, when you buy a car, there's a lot of metals there. Mining, again, is one of the most destructive things that we, uh, we do. And we've got to ask, where are the metals coming from? What is the impact of mining in their ecosystems on the people? We've got to be much more thoughtful of everything that we use. That's a really big ask. That's great. So two is consumption. Yeah. Look at what we're consuming. Yeah. Become minimalist in our, in our consumption. And then I think it's working very, very hard to create community. I believe the unit of survival into the future yeah. is going to be the community. The community is going to be what shares, support each other, and we're going to find ways of our entertainment, our joy. Everything is going to come from our local, local area. So put money into building your local local community. All right. David Suzuki, uh, Dr. David Suzuki, you are a super humanitarian. I know that that word does make you uncomfortable, but if there's one thought that you'd like to leave the listeners and the, and the viewers with as we, um, as we finish the interview, what would it be? Well, to be thoughtful, most of your viewers will be parents or prospective parents or grandparents. And uh, to me, the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life was when I had my first child. And being a father has been the most rewarding, wonderful thing I've done. And I thought it was, that was it until I had grandchildren. And that is 10 times better because I don't have to spend 24 hours a day. You can give them back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that has, that has just driven me with a really powerful sense of passion and concern because they are by far the most important things on the planet. To me. Well, that's interesting, which leads to a question which you may have already answered, but what, what, is, your, what is Dr. David Suzuki's purpose? What is it that drives you? Well, it's, it's exactly that. Yeah. I'm at a stage, as I say, when I, when I realized that even my testosterone levels were dropping, uh, oh my God, I thought that's what life was all about. <laughs> and what I found was that I keep telling my wife, I'm getting smarter. I don't have to think about sex every five minutes. Holy cow, I'm going to catch up to you soon, you know, like, uh, but I mean, being an elder has put a lot of things into, uh, into perspective. Mm. And I can tell you money and 
all of the stuff, you know, I see rich people building these gigantic homes and buying very expensive fancy cars and even planes. Believe me, at the end of your life, that's not what you're going to feel mm. proudest of or that, that you, you contributed to. It's not going to be stuff or money. It's going to be your children and grandchildren. So think about them, please. Dr. David Suzuki, thank you so much for your time. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say and your reviews. Make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media at Kerwin Ray. 